We are going to continue today in the series in Genesis, and I hope this has been beneficial to you. If you noticed this morning that most of the songs we sang were very Christ-centered, and you might think to yourself, well, how do I make the connection between the New Testament Christ? How do I make the connection between Jesus, who he was, what he did for us, and the Old Testament? And I hope this morning that you'll see again, uh, like we saw in Genesis 1, in Genesis 3, in Genesis 12, I hope you'll see again uh, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is all throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's a foreshadowing. Everything in the Old Testament points to the resurrection, and everything in the New Testament points back to the resurrection. And so uh, we hope that you will just make that connection today. And we're going to look at chapters 15, 16, and 17, and I'm glad that I don't have to preach two services, because I always feel like when I do two services, I have to stay within a time element to make sure that we get the change between the two services. But course when we only do one there's no time limit so hopefully you don't have lunch plans today because we're going to go through chapter 15 16 and 17 and it's going to be hopefully more enjoyable than your lunch would have been it's not going to really give you that long but it feels like it it just feels like it today but but it's not going to be I promise so let's get started right with Genesis chapter 15 and we see the first thing that happens here is that God makes a covenant with Abraham God makes a covenant with Abraham Now, that word covenant is probably most used in our society in the uh, realm of a marriage covenant. Uh, And the reason that we use the term uh, covenant in a marriage is because it's supposed to be irrevocable, it's supposed to be uh, uh, consistent, and it's supposed to be really a covenant is not always between two people, but most of the time it's really a promise of one to another. And when you think about a marriage covenant, it's really not accurate to say it's a promise between two people. It's a promise on one, for one, on behalf of the other, and it's a promise of one on behalf of the other. In other words, we don't make those uh, promises based on whether or not our spouse lives up to their end of the promise. We make those promises before God and these witnesses, as we talk about uh, in a marriage ceremony, whether they live up to it or not. And so I want you to kind of have that mindset as we look at uh, the covenant here uh, that God makes with Abraham. And that's our first point. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Let's look at Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Elizer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, God's covenant is sort of unfolding in bits and pieces to Abram here. And if you get confused about the name Abram or Abraham, uh, his name's actually going to be changed today in these chapters. His name is still Abram at this point, and God's covenant is is unfolding in these little pieces. Okay, If you remember, uh, before, a couple of weeks ago, Abram separated from Lot. He heard this from God in chapter 12, which... um, Christopher read for us a couple of weeks ago when he preached in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred 
and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it kind of started in chapter 12 and these words are are very similar uh, here in chapter 15 but it's unfolding a little bit. Now in this passage, Abraham actually expresses his lack of faith in the moment. God has told him, you're going to have an heir. And he's gonna, you're going to have all these uh, descendants, as many as the stars, as much as the sand, as, as much as the grains of sand. It's going to be all these people. And Abraham's like, uh, God, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a son. Hello? He says, I continue to be without an heir. So what he says is, so I guess, God... Uh, this servant who was born in my house will have to be my heir. Now, that was common. That was pretty common at the time. If, if a, a man had no sons, uh, his daughters in that uh, society would not be heirs, but, but some uh, kind of the upper um, uh, servant in the house that was born in the household would be the heir, would become the heir. And so Abram, assuming that he doesn't have a son, knowing that he doesn't have a son, he says, I guess this other guy who was born in my house will have to be my heir. Now, Abram's old at this point. His wife is old. In this moment, he expresses his disbelief that God will actually be able to do what he promised. He won't be able to give him a true heir. But God immediately speaks to him again and assures him that this will be his very own son. He says, Abram, no, no, that guy's not going to be your heir. You are going to have a son and he will be your heir. Now, after God reveals this to Abram, here's what happens, and it's very important. Abram believes God and is saved. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, that looks like New Testament language, doesn't it? It looks like New Testament language because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, what he did on the cross, God counts that as righteousness for us. But Jesus hasn't come yet. What does this mean? Well, this is a really incredible verse for our understanding here, folks. It says that Abraham believed in faith what God said was true. And God reckoned it or counted it to him as righteousness. Abram, like all of us, was not completely righteous, not in his behavior. However, because of his faith in the one true God and what he had told him and what he had promised, God counted his faith as righteousness to him. Now, this is not unlike our own salvation in the New Testament. We put our faith and trust in God through his son Jesus Christ and what he did, that he was the Messiah, that he died on the cross to pay for our sins, And God counts our faith as righteousness for us. It covers our sins. We aren't completely righteous. We don't always do the right thing. But God counts our faith as righteousness, as giving us credit through Christ to be righteous. We sang about it this morning. Uh, One of the songs we just sang about this morning talks about our righteousness. It says, basically, I have nothing to depend on but my righteousness. That doesn't mean, hey, I have nothing to depend upon except the fact that I've I've arrived. I've actually reached perfection and I'm I'm being righteous. That's not what it's meaning. 
Its meaning is I have nothing to rely on but my righteousness that God sees through his son Jesus Christ in me. You know, sometimes we read the Old Testament with all of the sacrifices and the legalism and the rules and laws and all that, and we get in our heads somehow that people in the Old Testament were saved by their works. Folks, that's not the truth. In fact, that's never been the truth. Nobody on the planet has ever been saved specifically by their doing works. People have only ever been saved by faith. Works are always a manifestation of that faith. It's a cause and effect relationship. You cannot do enough good things in order to be saved But if you truly have faith in God, and now in the New Testament through Christ, if you have faith in God through Christ, those works will happen. It's a cause and effect. If you're really saved, you can't not have good works. It's an an automatic kind of situation there, cause and effect. Abraham was saved because he believed God, even when it made no earthly sense to him. He trusted God. He believed what he said. He just got through saying, you know, paraphrase, God, are you kidding me? Look, look how old I am. Don't tell her I said this, but look how old my wife is. We can't have kids. There's no way we're going to have an heir. How is that even possible, God? And God basically says, Abram, trust me. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. Just relax. Trust me. And instead of Abram's ham- Instead of Abram going, I don't know, God. He's like, okay, God, I yield. I yield. I trust you. You've said it. I believe it. I trust you. And in that moment, God saw that he was serious. God read his heart. He knew that he was completely and totally uh, trusting him. And he counted it to him as righteousness. You see, Abram was saved much the same way that we are in much the same way that everyone has been if they have been throughout history. After we see here that Abraham believes God and is saved, Sarah convinces Abraham to attempt to complete God's covenant on their own. Now, it's interesting that Abram just had this great moment. Just, now, so he's, he's doubting, and now God reassures him, and he trusts God, and it, he counts it as righteousness. And then Sarah has an idea to kind of supersede God's God's will. And Abram gets, as you read this, you see that Abraham has faith, then he doubts a little. Then he has faith, then he doubts a little. A lot kind of like us, wouldn't you say at times? Yeah. So let's be careful not to judge Abram too harshly here at what happens. But look what happens in Genesis chapter 16, verses one through six. And and remember, Abram and Sarah are are in their 90s. So it's not like, hey, I'm I'm, I'm pushing 40, I can't have kids anymore, okay? They're, They're like really old, all right? Look what it says in Genesis 16, one through six. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. 
So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt with her harshly, and she fled from her. Now, there's a lot of hers and hers and hers and hers in there. It's kind of a little bit confusing. But here's what happened. So Sarah's basically tired of waiting on God, and perhaps she didn't believe that she could conceive or she didn't believe that she could have a child at this point. She thought it was really hopeless. So instead of trusting God, instead of waiting, instead of praying, instead of begging God and trusting his promise, she decides to take matters into her own hands. Again, I see that and I go, wow, I can do that sometimes. I, I, can, I can take matters into my own hands without waiting on God to work things out in his time and his way, I can try to fix this situation too quickly. So Sarah gives Hagar to Abram as kind of a surrogate to get his heir. She's basically saying, hey, I'm going to give you my servant. I know she's young. Uh, she'll be able to get a child, and, and you'll be the surrogate, and I'll be the mom. I'll take her when you have the child, and, and Abram will have a, an heir. But when Hagar gets pregnant right away, she begins to look down on Sarah. Now, why would she do this? Well, a couple of reasons. And the scripture doesn't say exactly why she looked down on her, but, but being barren was considered to be defective or even possibly cursed by God. If, if a woman couldn't bear children, she was considered to be kind of broken. And so uh, uh, Sarah gives her, her uh, uh, servant, Hagar, to Abram, and right away she gets pregnant. So, so Hagar looks down on Sarah, perhaps even wondering what her and Abram needed her for, since she could give Abraham children. I mean, she's just, you know, kind of looking down on her. So Sarah is like, oh no, you ain't going to treat me like that. She begins to mistreat Hagar, even to the point that Hagar says, you know what, even being pregnant with Abraham's son, I'm leaving into the wilderness. This is getting so bad. I'm being treated so poorly. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not going to put up with this. So she leaves even in her state of being pregnant and goes off into the wilderness. And that can be kind of scary. That can be kind of scary. We don't see here a list of people that went with her. We don't see that she went with a huge entourage. And so it seems that she's going kind of on her own. She may have taken a couple of people with her, but we don't know that. And so she goes off into the wilderness, this pregnant woman, no prenatal vitamins, all on her own. Okay? And so what's she going to do out there? And this is Abram's only son at this point. Well, we see then that God saves Hagar and Ishmael, who's going to be the son. You'll see it here in chapter 16, verses 7 through 16. And I'm reading so much today, folks, because God just says it better than I could. All right, so we'll talk about it, but I want you to read these verses with me. Verses 7 through 16. It says, The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, 
Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Wow, 86 years old, has this child. So God finds Hagar in the wilderness and tells her to go back to Abram, uh, to Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarah at this point. She will have a son whose offspring, it says, cannot be numbered. Does that sound familiar? It's a blessing. She's saying, listen, you go back. I will bless your son. He'll have more offspring than can be numbered. But then he says, but basically, they're not going to get along with anybody. I love that, that phrase. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. I've never heard that about anybody. Be a wild donkey. I've heard some things close to that, but not quite that. Be a wild donkey of a man. And it means that he's just going to have He's going to have contingencies with everybody. He's going to, not contingencies, he's going to, he's going to, you know, butt heads with everybody. I mean, he's just going to not get along in the world. But she does go back, and she has her son Ishmael when Abram is 86 years old. Now, here they are. Abraham, Abram has got this son, Ishmael. He has an heir, in a sense, but it's by this, servants being the mother, the surrogate. He's got, in a sense, kind of an illegitimate child. And, and Sarah has no children yet. Man, it's not looking good. It's just not looking good. But God, in his just wonderful character, reiterates and expands his covenant with Abram. Look in chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. This, this covenant continues to unfold. It continues to get bigger and better. Look what he says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I might make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
God makes it clear that this is a permanent and irrevocable covenant. This covenant was between God and Abraham and his descendants. Now, let me just take a little uh, uh, side trail here for just a minute. You know, sometimes when people are debating or arguing about Christianity or Christians not believing in the whole Bible, and they'll say, well, you don't believe the whole Bible because you don't do all the, the rules of the Old Testament. You don't all these things. Listen, this, this doesn't apply to us. This doesn't really concern us as far as our living. We are not Abraham's descendants. Um, I don't know everybody in here, but the majority of us I know, the majority of us I know are not Abram's descendants or Abraham's descendants now. We are not Jews. We are not a part of the nation of Israel. This does not apply to us. That doesn't mean that it's not true and it's not, you know, part of the, the scriptures. We're still learning a lot about God's character. We're still learning a lot about how God deals with mankind. This covenant is with Abraham and the nation of Israel. That's it. Is this our God? Yes. But does this covenant apply to us? No, we're not part of the Jewish nation. However, we are witnesses to history, folks. And we're living in a very interesting time. Because uh, the last time, prior to the last generation, the last time the nation of Israel kind of was together as a nation was when they were taken into captivity in 722 BC. And they were kind of wiped off the face of the map at that point. They weren't recognized by the world as a nation. But in 1948, the nation of Israel became a free state again. And by the way, if you don't know much about history, the U.S. was the first nation to officially recognize it as a legitimate state. We have this great relationship. The United States has this great relationship with the nation of Israel. And we are, uh, uh, you know, buddies with the nation of Israel. Now, I don't know where you're at politically. I don't want to know. I don't really care where you're at politically. And whether you like what Israel does or doesn't do or this policy or that policy, I don't really care. Here's the point, folks. The United States started this great relationship with Israel because they knew who Israel was. They know that God has plans for the nation of Israel. And we want to be on the right side of God with God in history. When you look, except for the times when a war begins and during the actual conflict, maps are all over the place. But to see a nation in 722 BC just kind of go off the map, be gone, and then 2,000, 2,500, almost 3,000 years later, come back on the map as a legitimate nation that the world recognizes, that just doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. In fact, and the reason I say it the way I do is because many of the nations in that area their maps still don't show Israel as a legitimate nation on their maps. Folks, th these are God's people. Now, they aren't always, as we see even, we're going to see in the book of Genesis, they aren't always uh, in tune with God's will. They're not always in tune with God's uh, doing and God's uh, wanting for them. But they're still his chosen people. This covenant doesn't go away because they disobey, folks. This covenant is still... Um, it's still legitimate. 
the Jewish nation with its Abrahamic descendants are still promised this land. God's covenant, God's promises are irrevocable and permanent. And so as history kind of winds down here, folks, and by the way, there are several um, prophecies that talk about when the nation of Israel kind of comes back on the world stage, the end is coming. Jesus talks about a fig tree. He says, when you see the fig tree, which always represents Israel, he says, when you see the fig tree begin to bloom again, it's right around the corner. It's blooming again. We need to be aware of these things. And then we see as the covenant has expanded, as it has, God's given more and more specific promises to it, then we see that circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant in chapter 17. Look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. It says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you, this is God speaking to Abram, or Abraham now, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Uh, now, I was going to read a lot more, but I frankly didn't want to say circumcised 23 times. I think it's that many in the chapter, it seems like, okay? Listen, circumcision was a sign that the covenant is trusted by God's people. It's a sign. It's a symbol. It's not a work that people are receiving God's grace through. It's a symbol that they already trust God. Their belief and faith is shown by their commitment to this sign. So what happens later in this passage, Abraham, who's now 99, and Ishmael, who's 13, they, along with all of the men in their household, were circumcised that day. And after that, every male child was circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. So what's the moral of all of this story for us? We see God making these incredible promises to Abram. We see Abraham's uh, faith at times uh, being doubtful, but always coming back to trusting God, always coming back to trusting God. And we're going to see uh, next week or the week after, I don't remember how it works out, we're going to see how God's uh, promise comes true. Uh, but folks, I, I want us to see in this chapter some very key things. And I think one of the key morals to the story today is this. God is faithful to his promises. He is always faithful to his promises. He doesn't disappoint. It's in his character. It's who he is. He can't help but be true to his promises. He can't do anything else. So we can trust his promises and not become impatient. But let him work them out in his time. Now, I'm I'm a person who I think uh, because of my history and seeing God being very faithful to me over years and years and years, I have very strong faith. What I don't always have is great patience. Say, God, I trust you. Get it done. (laughs) Okay, please, God, just get it done. And I think think one of the lessons that we can take from this, folks, is that, that God knows the timing. He knows how things are going to uh, evolve in our lives, how they're going to uh, unveil themselves. He makes so many promises to us, and we just have to trust them. 
He makes promises like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 10.9, if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Proverbs 3.5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will direct your path. Folks, God's promises are true and they can be trusted. And the most important place they can be trusted is when it comes to salvation. When we put our faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross by giving his body and his blood to pay for our sins, that gift is laying right there. God's made a promise. It's available to all who will put their faith and trust in Jesus to forgive their sins. And so this morning, we want to do two things. One, if you've already done that, I want you to celebrate that. I want you in your heart to be grateful and thankful that we have those promises from God, that he is always true to his promises, that our eternities are already decided and not even we can change them if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus. But if you're here and you haven't crossed that line of faith yet, if you haven't said, God, I trust you, I trust you with my eternity by putting my faith and trust in what Jesus did, I give you my life. If you've not done that yet, I I just want you to know, hear those promises from God. He's waiting to answer them. He's waiting to give you the promise if you'll just submit and give your life to him. While this Abrahamic covenant is still in effect for the nation of Israel, it really doesn't affect us that much. But folks, Jesus said there was a new covenant. On the night he was betrayed, he brings up this term about a new covenant, and that does affect us. It affects us greatly. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 26. I want you to see this uh, right from God's word. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He has made a covenant with us. And, and like circumcision is the, is the kind of symbol of Abraham's covenant, it's the symbol of acknowledging that uh, the nation of Israel is under that covenant, Uh, The Lord's Supper is much the same way. It is a symbol. Uh, We don't believe in transubstantiation here. We don't believe that this is actually the body of Jesus or the blood of Jesus. It is a symbol that recognizes the need to remind ourselves of the covenant he's made with us. 
the promise he's made to us to accept us in our sinfulness, to forgive us of our sins, to make us, like Abraham, appear righteous. We aren't completely righteous, but he makes us to appear righteous because of what Jesus did on the cross. This morning, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask the guys that are gonna help me to come down here and we're gonna pass out both the bread and the juice. And if you would please hang on to that, we're gonna all take it together today. We don't always do that, but today we're gonna take it all together. And uh, so hang on to that. And if you're here today and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, whether you're a member at Fellowship of Grace or not, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus and you are a Christian, uh, according to the word of God, you are welcome to take this with us. Okay? I want us to remember this morning that God's covenants, God's promises are all eternal in a sense. Uh, they aren't, they're not revocable. And so he's promised us eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ, if we put our faith and trust in him. So let's celebrate that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible love that you've shown us. We thank you, God, for your character, one whom we can trust not only with our lives, but with our eternities. God, help us to love you with our whole hearts. Help us to love you the same way that you love us. God, help us to never get over what you have done for us. Help us to not take it for granted. Help us to not forget what you've done. But every moment of every day, live thankfully, gladly, passionately because you have given your son Jesus for us. Thank you for this new covenant, which we can get in on. Father, thank you for saving us, giving us the opportunity to be connected to you through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.